Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Bar Fights. I cannot tell you how excited I am to finally bring this show to life. My name is Sarah Klein, and for those who don't know me, I'm an attorney and advocate at Manley, Stewart, and Finaldi, the nation's leading law firm for sexual abuse cases. I am also a former competitive gymnast and one of the first known victims of former Olympic women's gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser. Each week here on Bar Fights, we will be talking about the issues that matter with a ton of amazing guests. My intention with this show is to inform you and to inspire you, to lift you up and leave you better for having listened to some of the conversations we're going to have on this show. We're going to be putting out a brand new episode every other week. And if there's someone you want to see on this show, drop me a message on Twitter at barfights underscore pod or on Instagram at barfights podcast. Okay. You guys, when I was thinking about who I wanted to be my inaugural guest on this show, I'm starting to get emotional already. Oh, I, there was only one clear answer for me and I'm dying to introduce you to her. This woman is somebody I consider one of my best friends. She is a bronze medal winning Olympic gymnast from the 2000 games in Sydney. She's a hall of fame gymnast at UCLA. She holds these insane records of being, having the most perfect tens of all time. And there are many people that I have heard describe this woman as one of the best gymnasts in American history. And she was definitely the goat before Simone Biles became the goat. Um, she's also a Netflix star and we're going to talk more about that later. Um, to be honest, I knew this woman far before she knew me. I was a fan of hers, a crazy fan of hers. I think at one point I had a poster of her in my bedroom. Um, back in the like nineties, I don't even know eighties, nineties, whenever it was that we were both competing and my path didn't cross with hers until 2018 when we met at the sentencing of former team USA gymnastics, doctor Larry Nasser. And for me, it was love at first sight. Um, and we faced our perpetrator in a court of law and, and we were strangers, but as you can imagine going through that experience together, um, bonds people really for life. And it was such a pivotal and catalytic moment in my life. And I truly have Jamie, Jamie Dancher to thank for that because 
She was the first woman to file a civil lawsuit against Larry Nassar back in 2016. And without her, I don't believe this case ever would have gotten any legs. And had she not had the courage to come forward, I certainly would not have had the courage. And I certainly would not be anywhere close to doing the things I am today and anywhere close to being the person that I am today. Um, my favorite thing about superstar Jamie Dancher, though, is her heart. She's a badass, that's for sure. I get emotional when I talk about Jamie. Um, but she's also brilliant. She's warm. She's hilarious. And anyone who gets to say, I am friends with Olympian Jamie Dancher is better off for having known her. Um, this is Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, and we are going to bring on our very first guest to this show, Jamie Dancher. Welcome to Bar Fights. Oh my gosh, thank you. That was, I don't know how I'm going to like live up to that whole intro, but um Oh my God, you're amazing. It's amazing to hear your voice. And I'm so proud of you for doing this podcast. Uh, definitely well needed. And okay, you just said way, way too many nice things about <laughs> me. Um, but I, you know, I feel the same. I feel the same about you too. And thank you for having me on, on your podcast. That's awesome. so awesome. It's so good to hear your voice. How are you? I am not going to cry anymore. Um, but you already made me cry. I'm like, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I know, but it's the first five seconds of this show <laughs> and we're already crying. <sighs> but, um, I couldn't respect somebody more in, in what you've been through in your life and to be the person you are today. Um, it's just so important for me that this audience and, and my followers get to know you. So let's kind of start, let's start back in the day. You were a little girl. I think you were three years old when you started gymnastics. I'm guessing you started in the same way I did, which was, we had way too much energy <laughs> and our parents you know, <laughs> wanted us to have an outlet for that energy. And so we go to gymnastics class. We think it's going to be super fun. Um, and, and, we find out we have a little bit of natural talent. You have far more than I ever did um, by a long shot. But I'm guessing you progressed pretty quickly and and became a competitive gymnast pretty quickly. Kind of walk us through how that happened and how you arrived at this elite level that we all sort of know you for being at. How did that all happen? Okay, yeah, Um it was a little different for me. So I was actually not a crazy kid <laughs> with crazy energy. You're just I was a crazy really, grown up. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was literally going to say that. So I make up for all that craziness now. Um, but I was, I was almost three, I believe when I saw the 1984 Olympics on TV and in that moment I decided I wanted to be a gymnast and I wanted to, be an Olympian actually. And my parents just thought, you know, I was too young to know what I wanted and had no idea or like no idea. Or, they didn't know anything about gymnastics. So I actually didn't end up starting until I was 
seven and a half years old. Wow. And just, yeah, so they, you know, they, I just, I started at a local gym and they thought that it was going to be an extracurricular activity that I was going to do once a week, but the, the coaches, I guess, saw my talent. I started on preteen and then I did move up the levels pretty quickly, you know, but I didn't, I didn't, I knew I wanted to be an Olympian, but I didn't really know that that was possible. Like so many kids have that dream. Um, I just loved being in the gym and learning new skills and was totally fearless. And yeah, I, I used to sleep in my leotard, you know, so gross. (laughs) But like, you remember that when you, did you ever sleep in your leotard when oh, you were young? And then yeah, like, and you're up, like and it was dying like to go to practice. And you had to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just, I, I loved it. It was a big playground for me. And I loved flipping and swinging and twisting. And yeah, I moved through the levels pretty fast. And then um, when I went to, gliders what year is that I started at gliders when I was 11 and that's when they decided uh that's when my coaches decided to start training me as an elite so I became elite when I was 11 years old wow wow and so talk to us a little bit about the culture of elite gymnastics because I think that really paints the picture of how you and I ever met, which is when things went terribly wrong, um, in large part due to the culture of elite gymnastics. So kind of paint that picture for us. Yeah, definitely. I I talk to my therapist about this all the time. Um, So when I when I switched gyms, when I was 11, I started training elite. That's really when my love-hate relationship with gymnastics kind of started. And it was confusing for me because um, I, you know, it was something that I loved so much. And then I started feeling like I was getting in trouble a lot, you know, and I like couldn't, like, I I couldn't do the right thing or like, I I went from training, like maybe, um, you know, like 15 hours a week to, jumping at double practices and training 35 to 40 hours a week. And honestly, at the time I, I couldn't get enough of the gym. So I didn't mind being at the gym every day, all day and doing double practices. But, you know, once it started becoming more like work, I guess, I, I felt like I was being told, like, you know, I can't work hard enough. And then they wanted to watch what I was eating. And I felt like, I was already a perfectionist, so it, I, I just felt like I was getting in trouble a lot and getting yelled at, and I wasn't really used to that, um, you know, from the gym I was at before. So it definitely became a lot more intense for me at that time. Yeah, yeah, totally. And the dynamic between a gymnast and their coaches is an interesting one, right? The gymnast is a child. The coaches are adults. Um, but it's this dynamic where the coach wants to, in a way, remove all voice, all power, all opinions, all personality from the child and sort of have you give your body over to the adults for them to do with it what 
they pleased. Um, you know, you absolutely trained mm-hmm. with Bella Caroli, who for the non-gymnastics people listening to this is arguably the most famous gymnastics coach of all time, Eastern European, um, and, and, and came to the United States with this Eastern European mentality of sort of beat the gymnastics into the kid and produce gold medals. Talk to us about what that was like. Yeah, no, I mean, you absolutely described it um, exactly how it was. And I think, like, saying I started elite at 11, you know, that's, that's pretty young. And I actually think that's pretty common, a pretty common age, too, for um, at least some, you know, some of the other Olympians I know. So going into elite and started training, and then I made national team, I made junior national team when I was 12. So it was so quick. And also meeting other elites around the U.S., there was definitely the common theme of like, this is how training is. This is how training as an elite is everywhere. So that, that abusive culture became the norm. Um, so going to the training camps uh, was, you know, it was much like, it was definitely more intense because of the pressure of national staff being there and meeting Bella and Marta Caroli. Um, but it wasn't too far off from also my daily life in the gym, if yep. that makes sense. So it was just something that the abuse and working through injuries and broken bones and being screamed at and feeling pressure. And that, that was all, that just became my norm, you know, yeah. and it was just became like, this is, this is what it takes to be an elite athlete. And this is what it takes to get to the Olympics. Yeah. So it's, it wasn't really, I didn't really stop and think about having a choice in that. It yeah. was just like, if I want to be, an, if I want to be an Olympian, this is the route I have to go. This is what I have to deal with. So. Yeah. And you're 11 you. or 12 or 13. Like you, it's not like you have a fully formed brain where you're, you have all this life experience and you're making rational decisions. You're a child and there are grownups around you telling you this is what you have to do if you want to achieve your dream. And so you just do it. You don't know even that there are really (laughs) any other options. No. Yeah. And, you know, being raised to respect my elders and, you know, I trusted the adults around me that they knew what they were doing and that that they actually cared about me, you know, that I, I thought they actually cared about me as a person not just as an athlete but you know it's kind of finding out later that 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 wasn't the case and yeah of course of course I trusted my coaches and that they knew what was best for me and that they didn't want me getting hurt or that they would also protect me I spent I spent more time you know in the gym with my coaches than I did with my own parents and my family and you know, like not to mention that they try to isolate your parents from you also. Like they don't want the parents coming in and watching. And, you know, it was in from my experience, my parents had to work because there's seven children in my family. So they weren't in the gym a lot. And then they were being told that they shouldn't be in the gym watching, that it wouldn't be good for me. So they really didn't see what was going on. And it was like if I 
kind of said anything, I would just get, you know, they, my coaches would just basically say I was disrespectful or I wasn't working hard enough. Yeah. You know, and that was kind of like the common thing for me. So, yeah. Um, and, and we kind of know which now. Which didn't make sense. But. At all. We know that now the term gaslighting, you know, that sounds like exactly what that was. If you speak up or you say, I want my mom here, whatever, it you end up getting punished for it. You end up being painted as the, as the problem child in the gym. Right. And, and then, you know, punish you for that in either making you do more routines or more conditioning or yelling at you or kicking you out or whatever it is, there are consequences in the gym for speaking up. Um, and I think, yeah, well, we weren't allowed to talk, you know, anyway, (laughs) even during practice, which which is, is insane to me now to think about some of that stuff because they, they didn't want us going to school. They didn't want us having any social life. Our only friends are at the gym and then we're not even allowed to talk to them during workout, yeah. you know, because it would like lose focus. And, um, you know, I think a, a good example of that too is when, you know, I did really well in school. And so my parents can understand, like, they, they, they're like, she does not like getting in trouble. Like I, you know, I did my chores at home. I respected my parents. I went to school. I respected my teachers. I got straight A's and they they were like, I don't understand why she's getting in trouble at the gym. And, you know, one of the, one of the things my coaches would, would have said like was, oh, well, school's really easy for her and gymnastics, this takes a lot more work for her. And she just doesn't want to work. You know, she doesn't want to work hard and school's easy for her, you know, just kind of like, brushing it off like again like this is me not wanting to work hard enough and me wanting to be disrespectful in this situation yeah so essentially yeah they're they're breaking you breaking your spirit like breaking you down um and you know I I laughed a little bit earlier because we've gotten to the point one thing Jamie and I love to do is be able to laugh because if we don't we will curl up in fetal position and not be able to get back up again so I laugh not because it's funny but because it's so crazy as an adult looking back on this and I know you have a bunch of you know nieces and nephews who you're so close to I have two little girls like it's crazy what we're describing right now, but to us in the moment, it was painted by the adults around us as completely freaking normal. Um, and that's, what's so scary. So you're at the Caroli ranch at these training camps, you're isolated. Your parents are literally not allowed. Like it's not a suggestion that parents can't go. It's if you want your kid to go to the Olympics, you can't come anywhere near this training facility. Um, they're controlling what you eat. They're controlling, you know, when you sleep, they're controlling how much you speak. They're, you know, controlling probably what you wear. And then they're controlling the doctor that you have to go see in order to be at this facility to receive treatment. And that doctor is Larry Nassar and, and the country and the world it's always eerie to me that people actually know who that is because, you know, we grew up with him. He, he was Larry from small town, Lansing, Michigan. I've known him since I was eight. Right. And, and you knew him 
um, from from your childhood as well. And now the whole world knows his name. He needs no introduction. Um, that always flips me out. But but talk about that. Talk about Larry Nasser entering the picture um, at these training camps and and what happened there. Uh, yeah, it's, um, meeting Larry was like, you know, we had to get treatment and not just treatment once a day. It was before every workout, sometimes during practice, sometimes, well, it was, it was before workout, after workout, before workout again, after workout, you know, it wasn't, we were getting treatment all the time and that was mandatory. Um, but going, going to see Larry Nassar was, you know, he was like the bright light there. He was, he would sneak us food and sneak us candy. And, um, he would talk about the coaches being crazy and he always was on our side. You know, we felt like, I know I could speak for other, other athletes at training camp that would say the same thing. You know, we felt like he was our advocate and we yeah. felt like we had one, one adult around us that, you know, saw saw the corrupt culture and, you know, the verbal and physical abuse with our bodies. And, you know, we just thought he was there to help us and he would tell jokes and laugh and yeah, we're going to see him. Like, I hate, I hate saying this, but, you know, looked forward to treatment sometimes, like just yeah. because we got to hang out and feel what I thought was normal, like just even make jokes and laugh and talk and have conversations. So, yep. Yeah. And I totally, I totally don't think that that sounds crazy to say that Larry was sort of the best part of this for all of us getting to go see him, um, was fun and kind and loving. And he was, he seemed to be our friend and, you know, getting getting to lay down on a treatment table. We weren't allowed, I don't know about you, but you were never allowed to like ever sit down in a practice ever. Um, and you weren't even allowed to stand in our gym. Like if you weren't vaulting, you needed to be doing something else, waiting for your turn. Um, so to go back to this treatment room and you get to actually like sit down, it sounds so stupid, but it was like, no, it doesn't. Oh I'm like, of course I wasn't allowed to sit down. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Of course you weren't. It's, and I get, it's so difficult to like paint that picture for, you know, other people who don't understand or being in that situation, you know, but yeah, of course I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to sit down. I mean, I got, sometimes I would ask to use the restroom and I would be told no. Yeah. And I'm like, what, okay, do you want me to pee on the beam right now? Because, yeah. like, I just need to use the restroom. Yeah. You know, sometimes we were told no to, like, go get water because they, I don't know, like, we're not allowed to get water. Like, that's crazy, yeah. right? When you think about yeah. that now, it would never allow a child not to use the restroom or get water. But that's that's how much control they wanted over us and that's how much control they had so yeah. you're right yep. like going to see Larry there's also that aspect of it it's like, like oh, it's also rest time yeah you know? yep exactly right and so Larry I think you've said before Larry was completely unsupervised with you guys he was allowed to come into your cabins and give you quote-unquote treatment in your own beds in this middle of nowhere, Texas Caroli ranch, 
place. Um, and wasn't there something yeah. you said about like the person you guys were supposed to call, like if you needed anything was Larry, were you the one that said that or was it somebody else? I don't, I, um, I had forgotten about that, but I, I know that some, someone else said that first, but, um, I know that, I know that to be true now because it was like, if you need anything, you know, the coaches would go off and hang out and, um, found, you know, as I got older, I knew like, kind of, they were like partying and like, you know, getting drunk every night. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So if, while Larry's walking around doing his treatments and so, yeah, if we needed, um, to call anybody or need anything, Larry, Larry was the one to call. Yeah. So, you know, give a grown man access to little girls laying in their beds at night. We're going to go out and get drunk and party and probably hook up with each other. I used to always hear rumors about coaches doing stuff like that. Um, And then, you know, Larry, just go, go treat them in their cabins, you know, make sure they're taken care of. I mean, what a psycho. (laughs) psycho picture that we're painting here um but but that is so beyond corrupt it's beyond and it it, but it answers the question that I get all the time I'm sure you get all the time how was Larry Nassar able to get away with this for 30 years and and you know forget Larry look at sort of any perpetrator within these big institutions you kind of hear the same thing they had unfettered access to children. They were unsupervised. They were the good guy predator. They were kind. They were nice. They did all these grooming techniques. Um, they gained your trust. It's sort of those themes. So let's skip forward to 2016. Let's skip forward to how in the world were you able to kind of put two and two together, which I never did until you came forward. I'm like, oh, that was just medical treatment Um, at age 36. I'm still thinking that. Like, how were you able to put that together and have the wherewithal to come forward and say enough is enough? I'm filing a civil lawsuit. Uh, Yeah, I had. So I had a friend at the time who was also an elite gymnast back in the day. And she had confided in me that her personal coach used to sexually abuse her. And in 2016, I was working a camp at the gym I was coaching at at the time. And, you know, she had, she had opened up and told me stories about her molestation and like her sexual abuse. And I would just say, I'm, literally like I'm so sorry that that happened and I literally would tell her like I'm I'm sorry that happened to you and I can't relate which is so crazy now yeah (laughs) but uh she actually wanted me to um talk to another coach who was working the camp with me and when I she wanted me to ask this coach if he knew where her perpetrator was at the time because he wasn't um, in jail at the time. So he was still coaching and she just wanted me to tell him what she had been through and try to like, not like hunt him down, but kind of start the process of, you know, maybe 
trying to heal from her experience. So what ended up happening when I was talking to um, Mike Lynch, when I said her stuff out loud for the first time, it was really like the first time I said details of what happened to her. And when I started telling him, I, I realized in that moment, I was like, kind of paused. I was like, oh my God. I was like, well, this doctor used to do similar things to me. And I was kind of like, what? That, like, can, can I cause something? I was like, what the fuck is going on right now? And yeah. I kind of, and then Mike Lynch was like, well, wait, wait, what, what doctor? You said doctor. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can't. I was like, I, I'm not going to say his name because everyone loves him. And I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. You know what I mean? I don't even yeah. know what happened. And so he was, you know, encouraging me to tell him and it took like, felt like forever, but it, you know, it took probably like 10 minutes. And I finally said, well, Dr. Nasser used to do stuff to me. And he was like, oh my gosh, you have to go downstairs and tell this other coach. And I was like, I don't, I, I'm like, okay, but I, I just didn't understand, but he's, I had no idea that, um, he had already been accused, I guess. I didn't know that at the time. So when I told the other coach, she just said, oh, my God, that's why he resigned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I know, like, a lot of former gymnasts, like, I didn't I, – I coached because I needed to pay my bills, and I love coaching the kids. But I, I was definitely out of, you know, the loop, when, especially when it came to elite gymnastics. So, um I had no idea any of that was going on. And so that was the weekend right before uh, where were trials um, in San Jose, I think. San Jose, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that was, and they were having like, they had that big Olympic reunion that I didn't even want to, I I didn't even go to it. Um, I just wanted to go and see a bunch of my, my friends, you know. And so I had at trials, I had asked a couple people if that had happened to them. And um, no one really said that it did. You know, it was kind of, I was just like, did this happen? Because I was trying to figure out, like, I, did, am I crazy? Am I the yeah. person that this, like, so it's probably not true, you know? Like, maybe, and like, Larry wouldn't do that to me. So... Um, so after, after trials, I was just kind of like, I was still focused on my friend's issue. And that's, um, I think it was Dominique, yeah, Dominique Mociano. I asked if that happened to her and she said, no, but if you're willing to talk to Catherine Starr, um, she went through similar experience being, being a swimmer. She goes, are you willing to talk to her? And I was like, yes, but when I first, my first conversation with Catherine Starr was all about my friend, you know, I wasn't really pursuing anything for me personally. And, but she kept asking questions about my experience. And then she was like, at the very least, you know, you should not like anonymously report him because, you know, he might be a predator and think about reporting him. And I was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I do that? And, you know, she was like, would you be willing to meet with an attorney? And 
So she, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him, you know? And at that point I wasn't thinking lawsuit. I was just like, well, I guess in, just in case he's a child muster and I'm right, you know, like, yeah, um, I should probably, you know, start the process. And, um, but that was, it was very scary. That's why I keep saying anonymously because I wanted to be anonymous because I, I knew everyone loved him. And I, at that time, I didn't even know if what happened to me was true. I felt very alone. And then I know from the past, you know, trying to um, go up against, you know, all the the big wigs in gymnastics, I, that was still very scary at that point. I was 34 years old. So I ended up meeting with John Manley and telling him like, oh my gosh, only like maybe one one hundredth of everything, not even that, you know, just kind of told him this is my experience. This is what Larry Nassar did. And by the end of the meeting, he was like, I want to take your case. And I was like, my what? He's like, your case, you were sexually assaulted. And I believe you. And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought I was just, you know, I didn't understand the process. I literally just thought I was trying to anonymously report. I don't know why I thought at that time I needed an attorney, but that's, that's exactly what happened. And then he said to go home and, and think about it. And I, that was a big decision for me because I knew how much backlash I was get, especially within the gymnastics world and felt very alone. Um, and then I had this moment where I was like, well, if he, if Larry Nassar did to me, like, or if he did to my nieces, what he did. And then I just lost it. And I was like, I have to do this. There's something wrong. Like, I'm not, I'm not wrong about this. I'm yeah. like, you know what I mean? I had to put it, of like in terms of happening to one of my nieces because and then I'm like I I need to do this and um sorry my niece actually just came in the room Aww. <laughs> so Aww. um I, know, I love having them over so yeah that's when I kind of decided you know what I, I don't I don't really care what people are going to say about me um if he's if he's out there and he's a predator I need, I need to say something because I couldn't live with myself if, if I was right, knowing that he was still out there doing this to other, to other children. So that's when I get the chills because I'm sitting over there in denial at 36, reading the lawsuit that was filed anonymously at the time. Um, but it did say, I think you were on the 2000 Olympic team. And so I'm looking at the roster going, you know, who is this? And, and the entire paradigm of my whole childhood is exploding because I'm going, well, yeah, that wasn't normal. (laughs) Now that somebody else said it, you're kind of like, I'm not crazy. Um, Mm -hmm. that's not normal, but as an adult, like, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just say, like, at the very, like, still through that was, you know, I had obviously no idea how crazy and, you know, how many women and how many children this happened. I had no idea, but it was, I remember when John would call me and he says, another woman has come forward. I remember 
when he said the third one, yep. um, I had some sort of relief and it's just for lack of a better word, not that I wanted this to happen to other people, but that, okay, like, yeah, exactly what you said. Okay. I'm not crazy. Like this, this was sexual abuse. And then I remember him calling with num- when the 15th woman came forward, I was like, okay, he's, yep. He's a We're onto something like, here. Yeah. He needs, yeah. yeah. He needs to be in jail like that. Yep. He needs to be in jail. Yeah. And I, I make this point for all of our listeners just to be very, very clear. Jamie Dancher went out on a limb by herself. And yes, it was anonymous, but people pretty quickly figured out that it was Jamie and she was victim shamed and called names and, you know, her privacy was completely invaded. She went out by herself with nobody else and filed this suit and had that kind of courage. And that's why I am here doing what I'm doing today because Jamie Dancher had that courage. And I don't know how you ever thank somebody for that, um, Jamie, but man, you did the right thing in, in, in the face of knowing that you were going up against, like you said, the big dogs and, and you had a decision. I could take the easy way out and just sweep this under the rug and just live with it and whatever, or I could do the hard thing and put myself out there and be, you know, called names and shamed and all of this stuff. But I know it's the right thing and I'm going to do it anyway, even though it's hard. That's what you did. And and that's why I tell you all the time, like you are a, a role model for me and in the way I want to raise my daughters. Um, I don't know how you're made Thank of you. what you're made of, girl, but you are you are one of my greatest personal heroes. Um, and I'm never going to stop telling you that ever. Um, you're stuck with me, sister. You're stuck with me. So, so we, I know we, we come forward at sentencing. Everybody sees that. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's, Let's talk a little bit about these enablers, right? USA Gymnastics, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, people like Larry Nassar don't exist in vacuums. It takes adults having a choice between the right thing and the wrong thing and choosing the wrong thing over and over and over and over and over in order for Larry to be able to do what he did. And so... USA Gymnastics, their first response was essentially to call you a liar, right? And, and to and to make yeah. you look crazy. Yeah, no, they were, like, had investigators calling me. They had investigators, like, calling my ex-boyfriends. They were trying to get dirt on me. There was, like, a whole, like, Larry Nassar versus Jamie Dancher thing, like, going on, like, online. Um there was a moment when Larry had so many supporters that I, this sounds dramatic, but I was like scared for my life. Yeah. Like I thought because they, you know, idolized him and like, like 
they were so on his side. I literally was afraid uh, for my life at some point. Like, um, I thought one of his supporters were going to come hunt me down yeah. and kill me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they basically called me a liar, said it didn't happen. Um, Larry would never do that. That he actually, you know, I found out later that he he resigned. And at the time, I think I heard he resigned for to have more time for another job, I believe. But that's the main, like, then later I found out he actually resigned because he had other accusations of yeah. sexual abuse. So yep. just like the, the cover up and I like the cover up that in the extent and, you know, it's like the money spent on trying to cover that up. And I just, I don't know. It's, I went through it and I don't know how these people are in the business of working with children when the last thing they want to do is protect them. And I think, that's why when I came forward, it was like I wasn't protected as a child. So I have to do the right thing in order to protect other children. Yep, Maybe. exactly. Because I wasn't. We weren't protected as children. And yep. something has to be done and something has to change. And, you know, how many years later is it? Like four years later? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's still going because it's there's still, still like... Nothing's changed. It's so they're just really gross people that never had any business working with children ever ever and so mm. Jamie filed her suit in 2016 what we now know is that in 2015 Michaela Maroney Ali Raisman Maggie Nichols came forward um to and and for those non-gymnastics listeners those are are some of our our nation's most decorated Olympians and NCAA athletes they came forward in 2015. They told USA Gymnastics what was happening. And USA Gymnastics did nothing, tried to hide it. There's now evidence of all of that. Um, swept it under the rug. Never picked up the phone to call Larry's main employer, Michigan State University. 60 more little girls were abused in those intervening months between when these Olympians reported. And, and again, Jamie mentioned, you know, they weren't the first ones to bring this to USA Gymnastics attention. It had happened, I think, 16 times over the 30 year time span. Girls had tried to report to adults in positions of authority, either at Michigan State or at USA Gymnastics and were shut down 16 different times. And so where are we today? We are still in litigation with USA Gymnastics yeah. and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee who claims they have no duty to protect athletes. That's literally the USOPC's point of view. It's not our responsibility to take care of them when we're at the Olympic Games. Well, then whose is it, right? Um, right. So, so they're still, they're still saying that they're still putting out flowery PR statements saying everything's changed when, when, you know, some of the same people involved in, in the greatest, the, the greatest scandal in the history of sports, um, are still have their jobs are still employed. Um, you know, people who, who knew about this and did nothing, um, are still going about their merry way. Um, and that's where we are today. And this story is 
far from over. There is more being uncovered on the daily about this and people like Jamie, I know this and, and I, I stand right with Jamie are not going to let this go until our children are safe in the sport that we at one point loved. Um, and, and that's where we are today. And Netflix put out a fabulous documentary. If you have not seen it, it's called athlete a, it was number one on Netflix for, for a period of time. And, Jamie stars in this docu-series and, and you get, you get sort of the whole story that we tried to just go through. It's done beautifully and powerfully and it is so sad. Um, what, what Jamie and, and these other girls had to go through, um, and what we're still going through. Right. Um, right. I want this in some way to be inspirational and just hearing your story for me totally inspires me, but, but what advice or what message could you give our listeners about how Jamie Dancher has been through everything she's been through and she's still walking through life with her head held high, graceful, loving, and just being the person that you are today, how are you still standing, Jamie? How are you still standing? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm not, but I, you know, I, I do have a lot of love and support around me and meeting you and how amazing you are and having that bond and, you know, some of the other survivors that, long-lasting relationships that are the only ones that can really understand, um, you know, what it's like to go through that and then how it affects, how it's affected us as adults. And I have an amazing therapist. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just think the healing process is probably going to be for life. Um, but how I stay strong is that I will not allow these people to have any more power over me. And if I don't stay strong and keep moving forward and keep trying to figure it out and keep healing, then I feel like they win. And I'm absolutely not going to let that happen. I love that. And the world needs more of you, Jamie. And it, the, I know it's not easy to to talk about this stuff. I mean, sometimes we laugh about it. It's It sucks so bad <laughs> to talk about. But the fact that we keep doing it, I know, is changing lives. And, and your message is just so powerful. And so for, for anybody listening, you know, please share Jamie's story, please share this podcast. And, um, you know, again, yeah, I did want to, I did want to say that too, with the, you know, um, with laughing at it and making jokes like that, that is like a huge thing for me too. So having somebody else to understand that, that, you know, my sense of humor and being able to laugh about it is really part of my healing process too. And I know that's yours. So yep. I, I actually did put my, 
Remember my little poem? Yes. <laughs> I actually that that is actually on YouTube. I think it's on YouTube. So and I'm like, I know like it might have like it can offend people, but um, you know, I I have to heal and and use my humor to get through it for me personally and um and that doesn't obviously like you're saying, it doesn't mean that we also take this very very seriously yeah and to protect to protect other children and share our stories it's um the the comedy aspect of it is just definitely healing yeah for for me and you know totally so I know other people can relate to that as well so yes and when we get together we literally laugh our asses off that's all we do mm-hmm. um and we may or I'm may I'm so happy you're doing this though I've been I, <laughs> Yeah, maybe a couple. That's what I, yeah, that's, I love saying that. I'm like, I had one glass bottle of wine last night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So John's like, oh my God. But I love that you're doing this. I've actually been um, trying to start my own podcast too. I just don't, um, I have all the equipment and everything. It's ready to go. It's just, so it's been hard for me to like know what direction I want to, um, go with, but well, so whatever much, direction. I'm, I'm proud of you doing this because no. it's hard. Well, thank you. And and whatever direction you go in is the world needs more of you. And I I really 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 believe that. How how could our listeners find you? Are you online? Do you do social media? How can people get in touch with you or watch your YouTube or um or just follow what you're up to? Uh, yeah, I do have, I have social media, but one of those things I've never really been addicted to. So I'm trying to be better at it. I can't even tell you what my Instagram Basically <laughs> just Google at, Jamie Dancer. Yeah. At Jamie Dancer. Yeah, and then I was actually going to put out um, another YouTube video soon because I, people are asking me like, when are you when are you going to do your podcast? When is that starting? When are you going to do more videos? And honestly, like after, you know, since 2016 and we went on all those trips and did advocacy work and traveling a lot. And I, I realized just for me personally, I needed, I definitely needed a break to focus on healing. And, and now, yeah. And now I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to, to move forward and jump back in there and, um, start this this work that that we're doing and um so I it will be coming soon yeah so coming say, soon I'm definitely on so coming soon yeah it's good on. and I'm but gonna yeah, light I'm a on, fire I'm, under I'm your on ass Instagram. good I'm lighting a fire I under your ass. on Instagram finally <laughs> yeah yeah bug me push me um, I am and when this but, podcast come out comes out there's gonna be a ton of people that might not even be in the gymnastics world that, um, that are going to want to follow you. So get that together, girlfriend. Um, no, it, it, well, and that's where I'm kind of like getting stuck. Cause I don't want, I'm obviously going to talk about gymnastics and my story and all of that, but I also want to focus on, you know, the, the after effects and how it affects mental health and PTSD and trauma. And, you know, that overlaps obviously with, a lot of other athletes and, you know, yeah. non-athletes as well. So yeah, um, that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to figure out the focus of it. So 
I'm not just talking about gymnastics the whole time and then bringing yeah. in all the, the, the humor and the comedy the side as well. So yeah. Yeah. Helping people heal. Well, I love that. And there's no better person. And I attribute much of sort of the Me Too movement to you and to your courage and coming forward and getting the ball rolling because without you, again, I would not be here. None of us would be would be as brave as as we have been the last several years. So, Jamie, I love you. I hope you come back to the show all the time. No, you I are hope you always made, invited. You be my first guest. Yes, yay! <laughs> yay! Exactly. I would I love, love you to too. be your Thank first you. guest. I love you. You're amazing. Um, and again, for all the listeners out there, Jamie Dancher um, and let's continue this conversation, Jamie, whatever you're up to, let us know here at bar fights and for the listeners. Thank you for joining us on our first show. This is so awesome. Remember to please share this podcast with everyone, you know, and if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, please know we believe you, you are not alone. And this was not your fault. Thank you again for listening until next time. This is attorney Sarah Klein. Thank you. Thank you for listening to bar fights with attorney Sarah Klein taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.